0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, Uh, my name is Father Ben. I'm one of the uh, rectors here at the table, and uh, I just got off a two-month kind of mini-sabbatical. So this is the first time I've tried this in a while, so uh, let's see how it goes. So anyway, Um, I'm getting signals that y'all are having a little difficulty hearing me. I wonder if we could turn this up a bit. Check, check, check. Let me see what we got. All right. How is this? Is this better? All right. Fantastic. I'm so glad. Um, We're uh, preaching this morning this text, this challenging text that Jesus, uh, where Jesus speaks to us and says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, And I think if we're honest, um, most of us, I don't know if we really know what to do with this command. For a lot of different reasons. I think sometimes it's because we're not sure if we have any enemies, right? It feels like something from the olden days. (laughs) Like, but today the only enemies I can think of are fans of a rival sports team or drivers who annoy me, right? And it seems a little petty to call them enemies, right? Say, oh, I guess I got to love them in Jesus' name. They're my enemies. What does it mean to have an enemy? I think another reason that we're a bit perplexed about what to do with this passage is that Some of us do feel like we have enemies. We have people who have sought to harm us, perhaps. People who have harmed us. But Jesus' command seems a little naive, right? A little quaint. It's something that we might tell toddlers fighting over a toy. But in the real world, with real stakes, when things really matter, it feels a little naive to say, love your enemies. Some of us have a culture war hangover. And what I mean by that is we may have grown up in spaces where enemies were defined as those who did not align with the right-wing politics that our churches had come to accept. Those are our enemies. And so any talk of enemies kind of fills us with this sense of dread, of like, oh, I don't want to go back to those days of thinking about those people as my enemies. Another reason, I think, is that we struggle to even imagine what loving an enemy would look like. Does that mean that we're nice to them? Does that mean that we let them walk all over us without complaining? Does that mean that we should never be angry with them? Which brings up, I think, yet another reason that this command from Jesus to love our enemies feels bewildering and even painful to many of us. It's because we've seen this command weaponized to silence the anger of the oppressed. We've seen love your enemies be a way of keeping abusive people in positions of power. Love Your Enemies has been used to suppress the work of justice. Love Your Enemies has been used to hold women in in captivity to abusive partners. Love Your Enemies has been used to impede people reporting abuse in the church. And because of this, often these words don't land on us as good news. They feel to us not like freedom and life, but rather... Just another form of oppression. So how is this call to love our enemies, not a call to passively submit to violence and to perpetuate injustice? I hope that God's word can illuminate that question for us today. Because this command of Jesus to love our enemies truly is a word of freedom and life for us today. Because the good news is that Jesus has disrupted and displaced the old systems of enmity that dominate the world by ushering in God's empire of justice and peace. So our fight, beloved, is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil forces of fear and oppression that seek to keep us all enslaved to violence and retribution. So friends, as it regards our enemies today our only war now is love, fought with the weapons of truth-telling, righteous living, readiness to proclaim good news, and faith in God's promise to liberate us all from our bondage to sin and violence. So how does God's word help us with this? First of all, I think it's important to remember who Jesus is talking to here. The audience that he is giving this very short passage that we read today is, of course, the audience that is receiving the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which starts with marginalized and oppressed people of Israel coming from the highways and byways all over the place to hear His teaching and to be healed of their diseases and to be freed from their oppressions. These are the desperate poor of Israel, The vast majority of the population who lived under the, the domination of these oppressive systems of taxation and exploitation that kept them constantly on the edge of starvation for the grotesque enrichment of the wealthy and powerful. That's who he's talking to. These are people who have been praying for deliverance from their enemies ever since their ancestor Abraham was called by God to begin the, his journey to become the people of God. Part of how God promises to be faithful to God's people is that God will deliver the people from enemies who seek to literally steal from them, kill them, destroy them. Our Old Testament passage of Goliath and David is an example of this. Deliverance from enemies, the Philistine army threatening Israel. And what's at stake here is so much more than bragging rights or a trophy. Horrific things happen in war. And in the aftermath of war, especially to the loser, and especially to women and children. And despite David's victory over Goliath, most of us know the ending of that story. Sorry if that's a spoiler alert. You can read it in 1 Samuel if you'd like. But despite David's victory over Goliath and Israel's deliverance from their enemies on that day, through violence and warfare, here we are, hundreds of years later in the days of Jesus, in the same place. It didn't work. The violence and warfare that overcame the Philistine army wasn't permanent. It didn't usher in God's empire in the way that they hoped it would. They keep coming back to the same place. There's always a new enemy around the corner seeking to steal and kill and destroy. Now it's Rome. And ultimately, it seems nothing has changed. These are the people Jesus is speaking to. These are the people Jesus looks in the eye and says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are the people who are probably wanting a new David to slay this new Goliath. And they're likely, as we are, confused. Love your enemies. This is a new teaching. What could this mean? So the first thing is we have to understand who Jesus is talking to. The second thing is we have to understand who Jesus is talking to, but in a different light. Look again at who Jesus is talking to here. These people aren't merely the persecuted and the oppressed of Israel, but they're also the blessed of Israel. Jesus says so at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He looks around at this rabble, uh, this rabble group of, of poor, hungry, weeping, oppressed people and says, you know who is at the vanguard of God's empire coming into the world? Y'all are. That's a paraphrase. He doesn't say that exactly, but that's what he's saying to these people. Jesus starts his movement not by trying to curry, pow- curry favor with the powerful and with the wealthy. He starts his movement by just giving the kingdom to whoever wants it. And it's the poor, it's the hungry. They're like, we'll take it. Jesus is like, great, let's do it. Let's start. Forget those bozos. Let's start. So Jesus here is speaking to people who have been entrusted with the truth of God's new world. People who bear the image of God, their father in heaven, the one who begot them. These are the early adopters of the kingdom. Love your enemies, Jesus says to them, because that's what we do around here. That's what God does. And God begot you, your children of God. So do what God does with God's enemies. He loves them. His sun shines on everybody. Everybody. Indiscriminately, So this is not a word of oppression that silences the marginalized and keeps the status quo in place. This is a word of freedom given to those who have been empowered to break the cycle of fear and violence that holds the oppressed and the oppressor in bondage. These people have been entrusted with the truth of the world. They're filled with power. Jesus has disrupted and displaced these old systems of enmity that dominate our world by ushering in God's empire of justice and peace. So our fight, beloved, is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil forces of fear and oppression that seek to keep us all enslaved to violence and retribution. So as it regards our human enemies, our only war now is love. Fought with the weapons of truth-telling. Righteous living, readiness to proclaim the gospel and faith in God's promise to liberate us all from our bondage to sin and violence. So let's land the plane here by talking practically about two things. One, how do we know who our enemies are? And two, how do we love them like God does? So first of all, who's who's my enemy? The first thing to say about this is anybody could be your enemy. The convenient thing about Jesus' teaching here is that it's the same for enemies and friends. What are we to do with our friends? Love them. Well, what about our enemies? Love them. It's not a hard math equation in one sense. If somebody feels like an enemy to you, go ahead and treat them like one. Love them. We'll talk about how in just a second, okay? So anyway, just to get that off the table, right? So it's fine. If they feel like an enemy, they probably are. Treat them as one. Oh, I love them. Same thing as my friends. Great. All right. But here's the, here, here's the thing I think that's more important. One of the ways that we ignore this command is by failing to recognize enemies that may not be personal to us, but are nonetheless people who have, through their actions, become enemies of God because of their commitment to oppressing and exploiting and scapegoating people. There's a Mennonite pastor named Melissa Flora Bixler who's helped me a lot in seeing this. So for example, the way that some people talk about it, the worst thing that's happening in today's world is our polarization. You guys ever heard this? It's just terrible that we can't talk to each other anymore. It's terrible that we're so far apart. It's terrible that we're not in unity with one another. We can't be civil, we can't disagree charitably anymore. And if we all got off Facebook, we'd feel better and get along, right? being a little bit facetious, but not much. That's the argument. But this way of framing the problem hides important things. One, what are we polarized about? We're not fighting over what color to paint the house. We're not fighting over inconsequential things. That's not what's happening right now. All this polarization has happened in the wake of very real injustice and a new awakening that a lot of us have had to the ways that our our system is set up to oppress certain kinds of people. So what we're fighting about, what all this polarization is about, is whether we should, for example, allow people to use the levers of coercive power to amass more wealth at the expense of the poor. That's what we're fighting about. We're fighting about whether we should sanction further control and exploitation of black people, whether we should participate in the scapegoating of queer people, whether we should participate in the oppression of women. There are people who are actively seeking to implement policies that would institutionalize these kinds of actions. They have made themselves enemies of God because they're working against God's purposes in the world. And that would continue to happen whether you're on Facebook or not. And So polarization friends is not our biggest problem in fact it might be quite helpful in helping us delineate and define who are our enemies who are the people that we are called to love so part of following jesus is standing in solidarity with those who have been who have who have crea- with those who have created enmity through um, sorry, standing in solidarity with those who have been on the receiving end of people creating enmity and violence through oppression. We can't love our enemies if we don't recognize them as our enemies, okay? To love an enemy, we first have to acknowledge their existence and recognize the ways that they are acting in opposition to God's good news in the world, okay? Makes sense? We have to be willing to name them. So how, then, do we love them as God does? And uh, here, there's no easy answers. It always depends on context, and it requires wisdom. It requires discernment, courage, and creativity, and experimentation. Earlier in this passage, right before these words, Jesus actually gives some illustrations to his audience about what it might look like. This is turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Remember these phrases that Jesus uses? And I don't have time to get into how this is so, but... These are subversive acts of truth-telling and righteous living that disrupt oppressive systems of power. They don't go along with them. They disrupt them. They're radical expressions of dignity in the face of abuse. They are decisions that people can make to not be passive victims but also not to reproduce the violence that is being done to them. And here is where I think our Ephesians passage helps us because Paul reminds his hearers that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Not against these human enemies who are in a very real way seeking to oppress and dominate and exploit, but that is not our struggle. We don't fight them directly. We fight on the level of spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that dominate our imaginations and keep us enslaved to fear and violence. And then he gives us some handlebars, helpful, these, uh, the, the, um, the armor of God, it's sometimes called. These are handlebars for what it looks like to wage war. This kind of war, loving our enemies as God does. What do we do? We tell the truth. The belt of truth-telling. It's a willingness to tell the truth and bear the consequences rather than hide the truth or refuse to speak the truth in order to make to just help everybody not be upset. The breastplate of righteousness. This is, refers to righteous living. It's a deep commitment to, as far as it lies within our power, to li- live reconciled with each other loving one another deeply, and affirming our shared humanity with even our enemies, refusing to treat anyone as less than human. A readiness to proclaim good news, using our words to encourage one another and gospel each other rather than accuse and condemn one another. And finally, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, all of this speaks to, as we go about these things, we do so in the faith that it's not up to our skill, but it's up to God's power that as we participate in these enemy-loving ways, it's not because it produces practical results every single time that we can measure, but because we trust God to deliver us from evil, and this is how we participate in that deliverance in a way that doesn't perpetuate violence. So we love our enemies by putting our bodies in solidarity with those who suffer under the violence of patriarchy, mammon, white supremacy, etc. And by telling the truth about the ways that they are acting against God's desire for all to flourish and inviting them to repent, to lay down their violence and join us on the journey of accountability, healing, reconciliation, and real unity. My friends, Jesus has disrupted and displace these old systems of enmity that dominate our our world by ushering in God's empire of justice and peace. So our fight is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil forces of fear and oppression that seek to keep us all enslaved to violence and retribution. Friends, as it regards our enemies, our only war now is love. Fought with the weapons of truth-telling, righteous living, readiness to proclaim good news, and a faith in God's promise to liberate us all, from our bondage to sin and violence." As a way of responding to this, just parenthetically, I think we're going to need a lot of creativity and courage in the coming months and years in order to know what this looks like. People's lives are at stake, and part of following Jesus is learning to stand with them and tell the truth about what's happening. So we're going to need lots of courage, we're going to need lots of creativity, so let's respond to this good news today, in prayer, naming our enemies in God's presence, you can do this silently or aloud, and asking for courage and creativity to love them in Jesus' name. Trusting, of course, in God's promise to liberate us all in the end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.